What's up, everyone? This week, we're doing something a little bit different. Um, I'm actually at answering listener questions. So um, I threw up a little post on Instagram for my story, just said, hey, guys, running a podcast. Any questions that you guys have that you're dying to ask? And um, I actually got a lot of responses. So um, I got like 15, 16, 17 responses here in the last hour and a half. And um, I'll be reading those off and try to, trying to relate those to late season. Um, as that's what we're all in right now. We're in that grind and I will be doing this myself. So I'll be talking a lot. So I apologize, but I'm going to have to stop and get some glass of w- glasses of water or take drinks of water, I suppose. Just like that, because yeah, it's just me. And I, uh, I do have, just so you guys know, I do have podcast guests scheduled for this week, but due for, to a variety of reasons, um, three of them. I have three of them that were supposed to be on this week uh, at different times and all of them, like we just couldn't connect. So I tried to do this with, with somebody, but at the same time, um, I just want to get this out there and get this to you guys because it is timely. We have, all of us have some time off coming up with the Christmas and new years. So um, maybe you guys are getting out and hunting and I want to just get this out there. All right. So first of all, we'll start, we'll get in right into these questions. Um, and I don't know if these people want me reading off their names or not, so I'm not going to. So I'll just hop into the first one is um, hunting. The question is uh, hunting late season for does question mark or how do I attract does instead of just big bucks? I don't know if you have a problem with attracting just big bucks because I don't have that problem. I would really appreciate uh, if you shared some of that with me, if, if that's all you're attracting is big bucks. <laughs> um but, uh, but how to find does, I, I assume the question is like, how do, how do I find does in the late season? Like big bucks, whatever. I just want to kill the doe. That's what I'm going to interpret this question as. Um, and that's something a lot of us want to, especially, you know, this time of year, it's just like, man, can I just get some meat in the freezer? Especially if you're on the verge of eating tag soup. And, uh, the big, the big thought process to that in the late season is food. I mean, you got to go target the food. Um, and a lot of that's going to be picked corn or standing soybeans. There's definitely some browse still left. If you can find some areas that have browse, um, and, and by browse, I mean, just, just small plants that have leafy vegetation on them yet. They have green vegetation where the deer can browse in and grab that. But a lot of it is going to be those big agriculture food sources that support a lot, uh, a lot of deer. And in the winter, deer will generally herd up as well. So, um, there's just limited food and limited bedding and they all tend to just concentrate into specific areas. I remember one year I was out scouting. Um, and I like to around this time of year, like if I don't know where these deer are and I can't find them, one of the things I really like to do is just take an evening where I have, you know, 20, 30 minutes. I don't have enough time for an actual hunt, but I can just get out in my truck and I will just go drive around and check fields. Um, just to see where those deer are, even private fields too, because a lot of times those private fields that neighbor public, a lot of times those private fields are all, all they are is just fields. So those deer will bet on public land and they'll actually move off onto the private land. I have a few areas like that where I can get that interception in there and, um, hopefully cut them off before they get to that pri- those private ag fields. Um, but I like to drive around and just scout and, and look for deer one year. Um, it was the most I ever saw in, in a field at a time, um, around me. And that was, I, 
I remember it distinctly. It was 86 deer in a field on public land, actually. So I remember it just blew my mind. I was like, what in the hell are all these deer doing here? And it was after, of course, it was after season. It was like two weeks after season had closed. And uh, in Wisconsin, the area, the area I was hunting was going until January 31st. And this was like in mid-February. I remember out there, I was out scouting, grabbing a trail camera that I had out there. And I was like, what in the, none of them were here before. <laughs> it seemed like at least. Um, but anyway, yeah, get out and try to find those, try to find those food sources. Um, like I said, pick corn, standing soybeans. And if you don't like have any of that in your area, I don't know exactly where you are and exactly your scenario. But the other big thing would just be to scout, um, put on the miles and start walking. And, um, if like, and if you can look at satellite maps and try to find egg fields in the area somewhere, and if you're hunting a piece of public and there isn't any egg around, maybe, maybe it's worth the drive another 30, 20, 30, 40 minutes to a piece of public that does have egg around it. Cause that's more likely to hold deer. One of the big things I've, I've learned in talking with a lot of these people on podcasts, plus hunting a lot of different properties myself is like, and, and it's something that, that all of us know inherently, we just, it's something that like, isn't doesn't come to the surface right away when you think about it, but certain properties are really good certain times of year. Like you may have friends that only that seem to always kill bucks, bucks during the rut, but hunt all early season and never see anything. You might have friends that only kill deer in the late season. Um, so what I, what I mean is don't just because you've been hunting a property all year, um, it doesn't mean it's going to be good this time of the year. It might be awful this time of the year and you might walk out there and not find a single track and you'd be like, God, I don't even know where to go. Cause I, there's no tracks, there's nothing, there's no deer here anymore. And that is possible. Like I have friends who have properties like that. Um, they have 40 acres that just do not hold deer in the late season cause they don't have the food. So they will actually go and hunt pieces of public that border egg fields that are private so they can have that opportunity because there are tracks on there. You know, some tracks are better than no, no tracks. Right. So anyway, that's a very long winded sentence, but, or long winded answer. But if you're trying to find those does, find the food. And if you can't find the food on the property that you're hunting, go find the food on someone else's property and hunt adjacent to it, or, you know, go shift properties, properties entirely. And the, the big, the big uh, plus for you in the late season is snow because you'll be able to find out whether those deer are there or not pretty quickly. Um, and if you don't have snow, you know, try to find fresh tracks and try to drop some trail cameras um, and see if that helps or maybe sit it and just watch that food source some night. If, if maybe even if you can from your vehicle do that, if you last 30, 45 minutes of light, um, whatever it is. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's my, that's my, um, thoughts there. Next question. Um, what is a good strategy to hunting hill country on calm days? I know this guy wouldn't care if I told his name, but that is uh, from deer development. He's got a great podcast or great Instagram page. Sorry. Um, and he actually got a really nice buck this year. Good for him. And he's been hunting a lot. So, uh, strategy for hunting hill country on calm days. Um, 
I'm not 100% sure what the problem is with hunting hill country on calm days. Um, I, I would imagine it's like you're entering an exit route, like you're probably super loud because it's really calm. Um, but for me, you have to take advantage of, on calm days, as far as wind goes, you have to take, uh, you have to take advantage of the thermals at that time. So, you know, you got a zero to five mile an hour wind, which is pretty much dead calm. Um, you're going to be assuming that during the day after about eight or 9 AM, when the ground starts to really heat up, all your scent is going to be blowing uphill. And you'll also have to assume that for the first hour or two, when the ground is cooler, um, your scent's going to be blowing downhill. And then in the evening, that last half hour, 45 minutes, when the shade really starts to set in and the sun sets, um, your scent is also going to start going downhill. And in that, in those transition times between the times that your scent's going downhill and uphill, it's going to swirl a little bit. So that always kind of sucks. Um, but that's, that's what you're going to assume for the, um, for the wind portion of it. And then otherwise, uh, hunting hill country on calm days, you know, one of the other things I really like to do is hill country has a lot of swirling winds and a lot of people are in that country, always fight wind and, and they never seem to win. I mean, even with an ozonics, even with scent washing their clothes, even with a, a million precautions that they do, uh, they don't they don't beat the battle of a deer's nose and it's, and it's just impossible. I, 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 I feel it's pretty much impossible. There's like a 99.9999% chance that you're not going to beat a deer's nose. And I, I personally know that I'm not, um, just because I I've given up on it. Cause I, I sweat and I work too hard to get to where I need to go. I have too much camera gear. I have too much stuff to just really, I don't have the time to practice perfect scent control. Um, and I don't, I, I've, I've heard one kind of like pseudo famous hunter, whatever you want to call it, um, say that they have never been busted by a deer, a deer's nose ever. And they sit in bedding areas all day. And I just want to just call bullshit on that. I can't cause obviously I don't know, but I mean, you know, the, the guy's got plenty of bucks on the walls, but if you're sitting in a bedding area all day, I mean, there's, that's, that's just, I mean, that's a far, far stretch statement in my opinion. Um, so with those swirling, that's a long way to get around to this answer, but with, with swirling winds and calm days, you're the, that swirling actually dies down a little bit. So in, in, and in the late season, um, this is just a general question. I can't really relate this to late season, but you can take advantage of that in getting into areas that you're always afraid to get into because the wind is always swirling. You know, there's certain pockets on, on hill country farms and hill country land where every time you've sat in there, it seems like, oh, the wind's blowing east, then it's blowing west, then it's blowing north, then it's blowing south. And I don't even know the deer are supposed to come from the west, but now my wind's blowing east. And when I was at the base of the hill, it was blowing from the south. You know, there's 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 those pockets where it's just like kind of chaos for the wind. And when you have a really calm day, that's when you can actually just count on those thermals and play the wind that way. There is like no technical wind, but you can get into those little pockets and you won't have that swirling effect. So for me, 
in the in the valley, we have a valley that's I think it's you know 50 yards wide. You guys have heard me talk about it plenty enough, but in those valleys, I get majorly bad swirling winds. So I can only really hunt them for the first two hours of light and the last hour of light on calm wind days, like no wind days. But then once I'm able to do that, I am kind of loud getting in there because there is no wind cover. And that comes down to entry and exit route and trimming your trails and all that stuff. But but it allows me to get in there and and hunt that last magic hour and those first magic two hours and hopefully get that opportunity on those. They're, they're really good spots that I really like on the farm, but any other time of the day or, or any other wind, I can't get in there just because it swirls so bad that I just don't have a chance. So anyway, that's, that's that question. Um, how to, how to hunt hill country on calm days. Uh, next question would be what scouting, this is a good question. Um, this is something I do every year. But um, what are some good scouting practices to do right after the season is, is over? Um, first of all, first thing is is go find where those deer are for late season for next year. I go everywhere and anywhere right after season um, because they're still, in theory, you know, the day after season closes, the deer don't know that, right? They're going to stay in that late winter, that late season pattern for the next few months probably, um, probably two months until March or so, March or April. But the, I would be going around if you didn't have success this late season, I would be bombing through all over heck, check the entire property that you generally hunt, check the entire property down the road, spend one thing that really helped me a lot, uh, like six, seven years ago when I was learning this piece of public to be able to find deer on it was late season, like postseason scouting. Like I would spend four or five hours on a Saturday and on a Sunday. And I would just go walk and walk and walk and try to never walk my the same trail in that I walked out. So always making a loop, never doubling back on myself and always marking everything up. Um, I use Onyx a lot. So I would mark every scrape I found. Um, I wouldn't always mark every rub. If there was a good rub area, I would. And then I would mark trees, like trees that looked like they were good stand locations. Because a lot of times you find those in the winter and then you come back in, you know, August, September and you look at them and you're like, I have no idea what tree this is. It's totally different than what I, when, what it looked like, especially if you haven't been back there in a while. So marking those trees beforehand right now is a great idea. And those trees will be good come October, November, once those leaves fall. So if you find some good spots, you don't only, only have to hunt them late season. You can obviously hunt them earlier than that. But the first thing is that I do is I like to find where they are late season. And then, um, and I don't care about personally, this is, this is a personal matter for all of you out there. I don't care about kicking deer out of beds in the late season. Some people do because, um, it is harsh on them right now. They are trying to really conserve calories and, and food is scarce and bedding scarce. Uh, but for me, uh, around us, I, it's not that harsh a winter, so usually it's not that harsh a winter. And if it is that bad, I'm probably not out walking around. If it's, you know, in the negatives and wind chills in the negatives, I'm probably not out there. Um, so I will, I will just go to those food sources and just backtrack and try to find 
where those bedding areas are and you're obviously going to see them in the snow just those nice little ovals right there or even you know like today i was out scouting around and it's just like little patches where there's deer tracks and all of a sudden there's a little oval in the ground and 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 you can see it very clearly when all the leaves around it are like kind of sticking up a little bit then there's just a little oval um so i like to find those little bedding areas and mark those for sure um and yeah i mean pretty much any scouting <laughs> uh, aside from figuring out exactly where they were for next late season um and also the big piece is is keep in mind the food source that they were that they were on if you do find those tracks you do find those bedding areas figure out what they were feeding on and say like say they were feeding on picked corn but then next year picked corn is in a different spot and this is now i don't know like winter wheat or it's uh you know picked soybeans and there's like not a whole lot there you might be totally in the wrong spot next year because the food source has changed the food source now the the preferred food source i should say like picked corn is now in a diff, whole totally different area so now they're going to be using a different area and it sucks but that's crop rotation and the deer will likely be using a different bedding area closer to that but then the following year you might be in the right again when that corn comes back so it, it, it really is taking all that into consideration for why these deer are using a certain area. And if you can figure out the preferred food source plus the preferred bedding area and you understand that crop rotation, you can start to be like, okay, well, this year they're going to be here. Next year they're going to be there because it's all moved. So, yeah, getting all that information down, scouting for all that, um, the food source, the bedding areas, the trails. The trails are big. Um, I, in the winter, I have a theory on this, and I've said it a few times on the podcast, but I'll say it really quickly again, is that the the bedding areas that they, again, this is a theory. This is not set in stone. I encourage you to test it out for yourself and, and prove me wrong, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, is that the bedding areas that they're in the winter are like their primary core bedding areas that they will be in year round. You know, they may, they may use this bed. They'll probably use this bedding area, you know, 80 to hundred percent of the time in the late season, because there just are far and fewer bedding areas out there that are, that have a lot of cover and are safe from pressure, haven't been pressured all season. And people rarely get to like, those are prime premium bedding areas. And then in the, in the summer and early season, like there are so many different bedding areas because of the vegetation that's out there, because of the food that's out there, they can pretty much bed anywhere, but they will always kind of come back to these prime bedding areas that you find them in now, because again, regardless of the time of year, even when the pressure is on, these are safe spots for them. So, so I like to keep those in mind. And that has been where I've found most of my more mature buck activity is around those bedding areas on public land. I'll find a lot of bed beds closer to the parking lot, uh, but it just, like I'll put cameras on them and I'll check them in the early season and I'll get them here and there. But then when the pre-rut and the rut kicks in, I mean, those those prime bedding areas, when the hunting pressure really starts to ramp up from bow hunters and then obviously gun hunters really put pressure on them, they head to those prime areas. And that's, you know, you can find those I wouldn't say easily, but you can definitely get a lot better idea of finding them in the late season or post late season than you can, um, than you can early season or yeah, any other time of the year. So, and the best thing about late season, post late season scouting is you don't have to care about the deer 
about kicking them up and leaving your scent all around. And I really like to actually set up a lot of cameras. I will run all my cameras uh, with a month or two months after season's over. Just it gives me an inventory check of what bucks made it and what bucks didn't. But it also allows me to see like how often some of these trails are used and what deer like to use them. Um, that's another big one is just understanding, you know, what trails deer are comfortable with. Like you might get a buck on a trail and there's three trails that a buck can choose from and 60, 70% of their movement is on a single one. I, I don't know why I have got that personally. Um, and they're all within 15 yards, 20 yards of each other heading out to a food source. But this buck likes to use this specific trail. And now you know that coming next season, you know, there's three trails there. Well, I'm going to sit this one because he was there. Another really good thing about putting trail cameras out post season is that there's like no one out there. So the odds of your cameras getting stolen on public are really slim, which is nice. I, I hate it's having your cameras stolen on public land is just, I don't know if I ever get madder in life than when someone steals my camera. I, I go through this process and I've had a few cameras stolen, but it's just like pure rage. Like, God, I hope you die in a car wreck tomorrow. <laughs> and then it's, and then after it's pure rage, then it's, well, why couldn't you have just taken the card and left the camera or even just leave the card? I just want the pictures, leave the card, take the camera. I don't care. I just want the data. And you're like pleading with nobody because it's all gone. Then after that, you just get pissed off and hope that you catch them on a different trail camera that's out there. And then you think of all these ways you're going to confront them. And then you figure out like, man, it's all going to go sideways. And then you just forget about it and move on and you learn about it. Like that seems to be my process <laughs> for trail camera theft and the the emotional impact it, it has on me. But anyway, that's like, I'm going to have podcasts on that just scouting after season. So we'll definitely um, have to talk about that more, but that is what's, that is my first, uh, to answer the question, what scouting should be done right after the season's over. The answer is at really it's everything. And I really like to find scrapes, but finding that late season, sign for next year is always um, a benefit as well um next question would be a mature whitetail is not the same animal as other deer deer bust you on your breath i'm not sure what the hell that means <laughs> um yeah i don't know i don't know what that one means um I know who this is, who sent me this, and I, I'm going to give him some shit for it because this doesn't make any sense. Um, a mature whitetail is not the same animal as other deer. Deer bust you on your breath. Um, I don't know. Next question. What are your thoughts on baiting? I don't care. If it's legal, I, I personally, I don't care at all if you bait or not. Um, I think people tend to have a perspective that's skewed by how they're raised and how they've grown up and the culture that they've grown up in. And you'll see like, how do I explain this? Um, I think some people get like, they, they get the perception of baiting is 
mis like misconstrued or they just don't like they think it's awful and it's the worst thing ever and it's the easiest thing to do and and all you're going to do is like it's like playing a video game you go sit in the tree and then you kill a deer like and that's baiting um and that may be the case if you're baiting illegally and no one else is baiting so the deer don't really realize what the hell's going on and you can just throw out a pile of corn and the deer are like oh a pile of corn and they'll come out and and get shot by you of course um i know in wisconsin baiting's illegal right now a lot of cwd i think there might be some legal baiting up in northern wisconsin I, i'm not sure i don't hunt up there and i don't keep my tabs on all the regs because it seems like they change every year um but but for me i i don't care the other the other big thing is like in states where they do allow baiting and it's been allowed year over year over year the people i've talked to in those states and kansas is one of them um and out east is another one but uh i believe it's kansas yeah is that these mature deer like if you're trying to shoot a you know a four and a half year old deer it's very unlikely you're going to catch them on a bait station like in daylight hours it's it's just very unlikely because they understand like that's where other deer go to die um so over the years deer will get used to that and it's and it's harder than people think um and i have a friend that hunts ohio and he uh he baits um i don't like to me i don't know what it's like to bait i've never done it i've never grown up that way so it's hard for me to judge anybody that does because it's i've never experienced it and that's that's the kind of aspect on life that i personally take is like i can't judge other people for what they do when i've never had the chance to experience it and it's just not what i've done um it's kind of like people in the south that run deer with dogs like some people are like you do what but that's a lifestyle to them. That's what they've grown up with. That's how they've always known to hunt, hunt, hunt deer. And that's what they do. And I far be it to me to judge them when I've never lived that lifestyle and I've never grown up that way. Um, I know some people like hate crossbows and what are your thoughts on crossbows? I, again, same thing. Like I'm not a crossbow guy. I don't, I don't use a crossbow. Um, I don't have a major issue with them. They haven't like devastated the deer numbers like people think they have. Um, Wisconsin's really rarely ever reached its quota in the southern units where all the CWD is. Like if you have a problem with not getting tags because all these crossbow hunters are out there, come to southern Wisconsin. I get four tags instantly for does and I get one buck tag. And if I shoot a buck that has CWD, I get another buck tag. So it's... uh, and then I get buck tags and more doe tags for gun season. And then I get more for muzzle loader. Um, and you can buy extras. So it, it hasn't, it hasn't affected me personally at all. So I don't have a judgment on it. I also kind of take, if you have ever watched Jeff, Jeff Sturgis from Whitetail Habitat Solutions, um, he has a thought of it. It gets more people into hunting. Um, it gets kids into hunting. It makes it easier. You have uh, some in many scenarios, this is this is a very highly contested topic. But with a kid that's just learning to bow hunt, um, a crossbow may be a better option. Um, I'm saying it may. I'm not saying it is, and I'm sure everybody has their personal opinion on this. But it may be a better option just because it's easier for them to point and shoot than to have to draw and and get their sight on them. We all know the difficulties of of bow hunting. Um, 
So you might have less wound loss in the beginning just because it's easier to shoot them at 20 yards um, and it gets them excited and then they want to kind of move from crossbow into something more of a challenge and they'll pick up, you know, maybe they'll pick up a traditional bow or maybe they'll just move to a compound um, and then and then that breeds more of a challenge and then we get more hunters that way. Same with women, um, women who can't draw a lot of weight. You know, maybe maybe a crossbow is a much better option for them because they can only draw 35 pounds and and at that point, you know, shooting a really high-end crossbow might be a lot better option for wound loss. Um, it, it's it's a huge toss-up there, and that's a huge argument. I, I have no say in it. I haven't done any of the research enough. I, I've just heard other people talk about it, and I, I just don't have, yeah, a huge issue with it. But with the baiting thing, um, yeah, like I said, it's it's all in the eye of the beholder on that, and I have no no major issue with it. Next question. Um, this guy wants to just know about small property tactics. Um, small property tactics rely on patience, a lot on patience. Um, so if if I'm in small property is varied by state, right? Like in Texas, small property is probably like 200 acres. In Wisconsin, Small properties like probably five to 15, 20 acres, maybe I'd say 20 acres is a small property, smaller, um, you know, so that's, I, I'm going to interpret the question that way. Let's just say 20 acres or less. Um, you know, it, it depends. Small properties, the tactics that surround them depend on the surrounding properties a lot as well. I mean, if you have all the bedding cover and your neighbors have only ag fields, well, then you need to set up your property to be the bedding spot and you need to figure out how you can enter and exit that without ruining or bumping any of those deer and they bet on it and then how they're going to walk past you to get to that food. Like that's, that's what you need to do in that scenario. Other scenarios... Um, where maybe everybody around you kind of has some food and kind of have some bedding. Well, then, you know, you need to fi figure out, can you plant a food plot? If so, uh, then yes, and then do so. And um, one of the other tactics then is, okay, what kind of food? You know, what are the neighbors planting? Um, can, should you plant clover? Should you plant brassicas? Clover is more of, a, of an early season food plot. So you're trying to catch those deer right away in September, early October brassicas and radishes and all that are late season um so it, it's kind of it's kind of a toss up there it depends on like i said what those surrounding properties are doing and then the biggest thing when i say patience on small property is you don't have a lot of opportunity to screw up right the 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 window then the gap there for for screwing up is much smaller than if you're hunting, you know, 800 acres of public, you can screw up all the time and still find deer. But if you're hunting 10 acres and you screw, you have a, you know, a doe group living there, maybe two doe, doe groups that are, you know, one's a mom and a fawn and one's a mom and three fawns uh, or two fawns. And then you have a couple bucks that are maybe two bucks that are living in the area and a couple that are um, in that whole surrounding area, um, a couple more you might only have three chances to screw up before those deer go, don't go there because it's very likely you're going to die. So that patience factor comes into 
knowing the exact wind and the exact time to get in there. So is it morning or an evening and time of year as well? So do I need to hunt this early season, mid season, late season? So, and that's probably going to be uh, experimental on your part and failing over the years. You know, um, one of the things with my property, this is a little anecdote, is that the four properties that surround me are all retired bow hunters. So the only advantage I have is that most of them, or all four of them really, don't start hunting until mid to late October. They just, they don't even worry about it. They don't hunt the early season. Um, and I've talked to them all and they all kind of, all last year, three of the four shot deer on October 25th to the 30th. Um, and the other guy just whiffed, he missed one. And it was all in that time frame, and that's really when they started hunting. So they don't put any pressure on their property until that time of year. Um, and then that time of year, they start putting pressure, and then I get more deer on our property. But that also tells me if I can, I kind of have the run of the mill for bucks. If I can get in there early season, I don't have to worry about anyone else shooting deer that are you know traveling property lines. So for me, a tactic that I'm really trying to focus on for this upcoming season, 2021, fall 2021, is planning a food source that'll attract bucks in the early season so that I can get opportunities before my neighbors can. Um, And that's also, you know, for your scenario, maybe, I don't know, maybe you only start seeing bucks in there during the rut or when gun season's on. There are some of these properties that people kill these giant bucks on that are 10 acres because they don't touch it at all, all year. And then they go in there opening morning of gun season. And all of a sudden a buck that's been living there all year and never had any sort of pressure, any sort of human sense or anything. All of a sudden he's right there because he thinks it's a safe spot and there you are ready and waiting for him. So that's, you know, that's, that's the, the advantage and the disadvantages of small property is it, if you're able to understand it over the years and then hunt it, you know, very sparingly on the perfect wind, the perfect time of year and a morning or evening sit, which is again, found via experience and failure and trail cameras, that'd be, that'd be the way to go. Um, I'd highly suggest some sort of, if you want to curve, like really shorten that learning curve there. I'd highly suggest um, like a Cuddy Link system. Nick Swanson was on last week talking about it, or a cell cam system, something to help you not have to go into that property. I know those are expensive, um, but they can pretty much like what would take you two to three years to learn from sitting and failing and exposing yourself to the deer, you can probably learn in a single season um, with those cameras. Because you'd be able to see, oh, he's in the food plot right now, or he's he went into the bedding area this morning, so I need to hunt this evening. What stands do I have set up for this wind? You know, like it just gives you so much information, and um, and that's one of those things that can, like I said, really shorten that learning curve. So that's that's totally a, a you thing, but um, that's my general idea on small property tactics. I should um, I'll, I'll get a guest on to talk about that. I'll find somebody who who hunts small property. I have a friend Clay. Um, who hunts a lot of small properties and that's hey like I think he has like a 15 acre property that I think that's a it's 10 acres of food plot um, and then he's got stands just kind of around the edges and he lets them bet on the neighbors and he tries to shoot them on the food um, so that's a that's a different scenario as well um, 
and he that's what that's how his property against the surrounding properties laid out uh moving on to the next question here let me see how often do you scout in the off season um i do i do almost all my scouting by I'm generally done by May, early June, um, and I scout a lot through turkey season. So I'll, I'll turkey hunt and I'll call and walk and scout and call and walk and scout. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of always scouting and then June kind of that's when I stop and I have summer activities and I just don't get out as much really. Um, and the vegetation really starts coming up and the sign really starts disappearing underneath all the vegetation. So at that point, I kind of just get out and I'll come back and I'll start dropping cameras in maybe, maybe June, depending on the area, but, and what I'm feeling, but a lot of times it'd be more towards like August and I'd drop cameras in early August and start trying to figure out where these deer are and, um, and go from there. So yeah. Um, next one, um, on X planning and how to scout for sheds. Um, I'm assuming this means like, how do you, how do you scout on X to try to find sheds? Uh, that's a tough one that kind of rolls into previous question of scouting post season is those bedding areas and food sources. Um, I'm not the best shed finder, whatever you want to call it at like shed hunter, ever. <laughs> I'm pretty poor at it. So I, I don't have a whole lot of success there, but the people I do talk to that are very successful, just say food sources and, and bedding areas. Um, that's where they walk. They just really understand where the deer spend the most amount of time. That's what they, this is what people have relayed to me is find where the deer spend the most amount of time and the odds of finding the antlers increases. Cause they would likely just fall off in that. Um, in that time frame when they're there. So yeah, that's that. Moving on to the next question. Chad, what size underwear are you? <laughs> Come on, man. Chad's my neighbor. He's creepy. <laughs> I was just kidding. I asked him to come on here and, and, uh, and do this with me. He never responded. So whatever. He's a, he's a good, he's a good hunter. Um, went to Kansas this year, killed a really nice buck. Him and I hunt the same public pieces and we kind of trade info. Um, so yeah, it'd be fun to answer those with him, but he didn't show up tonight. Uh, next question. How do you find bucks late season without trail cameras on new ground, only native food? That is a specific question and that's a great way to kind of put it together. Um, the answer to that is scout, man. You just gotta, you gotta cover ground. Um, you gotta cover ground and you gotta look for tracks, good tracks and, um, and try to find those, those food sources. Um, you're going to have to put in time and I've done this many seasons where I don't, I'm looking into a new property and I don't know where the deer are. I don't know where they're going. I don't know how to find them. So the first thing I always try to do is, is I just get in there in the middle of the day and just go for a big walk kind of mid morning. If I can on a Saturday, like a 10 AM to 2 PM or something like that. 
and I just go for a big walk and try to find um, try to find the sign. If I can find tracks, if I can find, you know, there will be certain pockets that are that are covered in rubs and have scrapes on them, um, and you'll find these thick areas and whatnot. So one of the spots that I'm thinking of was, again, it was a full moon night, and I just went for a big drive. And on this new this new property, I was looking at, I was just driving all around it um, within like a mile of it or so, because in the late season, deer don't tend to move very far. They like to be close to the food. It it allows them to spend less calories um, but it also depends on how safe they feel like they need to feel safe close to the food otherwise they are going to walk further um, but generally it's they try to get as close close to the food as they can with as safe as they can so i i just drive the fields and i look for sign in the daytime too you know because you can see where where the deer will come out and dig up the fields and whatnot um, but one night I pulled up and there were like 30 deer in this one field that was on the edge of public. And when I, when I drove by, I stopped to just take a look at them. They all ran right back into the public. So obviously the next day I went in there and I checked the trails found, and I found some good rubs, found a couple good scrapes. And then it was, it was obvious where those trails were going into kind of a thicker adjacent private area. So they were cutting through the public for, I don't know, a hundred 200, 100, 150 yards or so, and then going back onto private. But it allowed me to figure out that area, drop some cameras there, um, got a lot of deer on them, no, no good bucks um, that year, and I haven't really been back um, scouting that too hard. I've just been, I've had other properties that I've been looking at and other opportunities that I've been chasing. Um, but it just gave me a really good idea as to where they were. And, and like I said, the cameras showed me that, and your question said, how do you do it without cameras? Um, you just have to go sit it like that's it's, if you don't have the, the whole purpose of trail cameras is to shorten that learning curve. If you don't have short, like that learning curve, you're going to, you have to have time. Um, and that's time in the woods and, and years because it might take you a couple years to figure out a property. And that's why some of these hunters, um, that kill good bucks year over year over year, they do it on the same properties because they learn the patterns of that property. Um, that happens a lot. And a lot of the people I interview and I talk to, and there's a lot of conversations that I have offline with people as well, um, off the podcast. And we, we've talked about that plenty of times is, um, you know, understanding the property that you're hunting is probably the most important thing you can do. Um, it, at, bar none across any property is just fully understanding it and hunting it. And that takes time hunting it year over year over year, especially without trail cameras. And that's like, you know, people in the big woods, um, Matt Spetz is a guy I talk to a lot and he hunts the big woods in Michigan. And, and that is knowledge handed down from generation to generation to generation on where these deer are in the big woods. Um, because there's just not, there's very few transition lines. There's very few food sources. There's you know, it's not like simple, it's not as easy as stuff that I hunt, which is like, there's the swamp where they bed. There's the woods where they'll probably come out to feed before they head out to the egg field over there to eat. You know, like that's pretty cut and dry on how that all works. But, but big woods, big timber, you, that's a whole totally different game. And that's why people spend years, you know, 10, 15 years up there and they get a couple good looks at good bucks and that's it. Maybe they get one or two. Um, it's just, it's, it's a totally different animal. So that's a really long winded statement, but finding, finding bucks late season, 
without trail cameras on new grounds with only native food. Um, the other piece about the only native food there is again, look at the surrounding properties that the food source does not have to be on the property that you're hunting. It can be on neighboring properties. You just have to hope that those deer are then bedding in that area or at least passing through the piece that you are hunting. And you'd be able to tell that via scouting. So um, again, for this guy, um, you just got to get out and you got to go scout and then find find where they are and you got to put in time in the tree. If you can't find them, find an observation set and change that observation set, you know, a couple nights in a row and sit that Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, and just bop around and see um, if you can f at least visually see them. Bring your binos um, and, and start looking because that's, that's the only way you're going to do it is time. And it, I know we don't have a lot of time, right? It's late season. Season's probably almost over for you. Um, but I would suggest like trying that this year, post season, scout it and treat, try to find all the trails on there again. And if it is that good and you see a lot of sign, then hunt it again next year and, and learn that property year over year. And you'll be able to, to figure out the spots that you need to be for next season. Uh, I hope I covered everything in that question. That was a good question. Uh, last question. When is it okay to eat venison tag soup and move on to ice fishing, ice fishing, asking for a friend? <laughs> um, to be honest with you, I have until January 31st to hunt and I was just ice fishing last weekend. So uh, for me, I have, <laughs> I think that's a personal question. <laughs> that's a good one though, because I have given up ice fishing for the last like two or three years because I've just been like solely focused on deer hunting. And I've told myself like, Hey man, this year, like if somebody asks you to go ice fishing and it's a good year and everything, you should go. And a, a buddy of mine told me the other day, he's like, Hey man, going ice fishing, you should really come. Um, and I said, well, yeah, you know what? Might as well. Let's do it. And we got into a bunch of really good looking crappies. So I am very happy that I chose to go. Um, all right, actually here, I got one more question and then I'm going to tune this off and, and appreciate you guys for, for sticking around this long. Um, I hope you found this insightful. My, I'm running out of, uh, out of breath and saliva in my mouth here. <laughs> um, that was a weird thing to say. That was, sorry about that guys. That was just, that was weird. Um, this guy asks, um, can you name some gear that's made major impacts on your hunting success? That's a good question. Um, I have mixed thoughts on that because I think that gear is always, not always, I shouldn't say always, but gear is 99% of the time second to knowledge. Knowledge is always going to make you more successful than the gear that you have to a point. You know, if you're using a slingshot with a rock in it, obviously, you know, the compound bow is going to be much more um, effective. But in today's day and age, like, you know, having the knowledge, like I was answering 
in answering this last question, having the knowledge of how deer use a property year over year, where they're going to be in the mornings, where they're going to be in the evenings, what type of food sources they like to feed on, on what types, at what time of year on this property, if they go to the neighbors, if they stay on yours, where you can get in and out without being noticed, how your entry and exit routes fully function, and do you need to trim those out? Do you need to hinge cut? Do you need to... Um, understand exactly what trees to sit in and, and can you get a 20 yard shot versus a 40 yard shot. Um, all those things play into how, how being successful and how to be successful and it doesn't have anything to do with your gear. Um, you know that I'm gonna I'm just gonna preface this with that. I think knowledge is number one and that's something gained over time. Um, and one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, I learn so much on every podcast, not necessarily this one, because I'm just spewing off my own information. But, um, but on these podcasts that I do with other people, I like it a lot because it helps, it helps me personally and that, and I'm hoping that it's helping you guys through that. Um, but I, I like to ask these questions and understand how I can get better and all of that's knowledge and information, not necessarily gear. All that being said, two things here. One, I'm going to have um, like my summer podcasts are going to be like gear dumps. I'm going to have, I was thinking about this for a while, might as well just announce it. I'm going to have like a whole bunch of different companies on talking about their different products and what they have coming up for this fall. So we'll have tree stands, we'll have saddle companies, we'll have, you know, climbing stick companies, we'll have bows, we'll have arrows, we'll have broadheads, all sorts of, all sorts of gear that you guys can really dive into. I think a lot of people focus on gear because it's something that we can control right? Um, it's something that we can, we can really dive into and it's something that we can do every single day and and we can tune our bow and we can work on our bow and we can shoot our bows at targets. And and people like to dive into that because it's not, there is no variable really involved there. Like you don't have to hope to God that a deer shows up today. Right? So we, we like to dive into gear because we can every day and we can control that process. Um, so gear that's made huge impacts. I would say um, this is in no particular order as I've just seen this question, but having good good warm clothes is, is big and clothes that don't swoosh when you draw your bow. Like that is the, that's the number one thing. When I was buying clothes at like Gander Mountain and Fleet Farm and whatnot, um, obviously now I buy, I've been using First Light lately. It's It's been pretty nice. I, I've liked it. Um, but, um, but when I was just buying whatever at fleet farm and whatnot, I'd go around and feel all the clothing before buying it. I didn't care necessarily how thick it was or anything. I just wanted it to be quiet. So having clothing that's really quiet is super helpful. Um, not swooshy or anything like that. Um, what else? Um, a good hanging hunt set for public or private land. Like I know a lot of people on private land just hang their stands and they hunt the same stands in the same locations year over year. Uh, I think there's better ways to do that. Um, I have, I do have stands set up on our property that I'll probably keep there for years, but I also do hanging hunts yet on our private too. Um, so having a good hanging hunt setup, whether it be a saddle or a tree stand is, I think is a good idea. And that's, I would spend money on that. I used to, I had an old muddy tree stand and I had uh, fleet farm special climbing sticks. And 
you know, the whole setup probably cost me, I don't know, 140 bucks or something with the stand and the sticks. And it was, it was cheaper and it was a hang and hunt setup. Like I had four sticks and a stand, but God, that thing was brutal packing in and out of the woods. Um, it, it, to a point it deterred me from going very far because I just didn't want to carry it that far in and out because the odds of me being successful are pretty slim um, at that point. So I was just like, I, and it always is the odds of you being successful in deer woods are always pretty slim, you know? Um, so it was just kind of one of those things that I, that I was like, man, you know what, I'm going to save up some cash and I'm going to buy my first mobile setup was a lone wolf setup. And I, and I bought it off a guy from Craigslist who happened to work for bowhunt.com. And, um, that was a cool interaction met with that guy. And he sold me a lone wolf alpha plus four climbing six for like 200 bucks. And the climbing six alone are, you know, whatever, 150 bucks. So I was, I was just ecstatic about it. And I found it in the off season too. I found it in like, I don't know, April or May when no one else was looking. So I, I would definitely agree or say that a good, and that lone wolf setup was awesome. Now, obviously, um, I still run a lone wolf here and there. Um, depending on if the tree sets up for it, but I do spend a lot of time in, in my saddle. So, um, I have the arrow hunter saddle little plug there for arrow hunter. They're sponsoring this podcast and they are an awesome company to work with, um, and talk to They're very responsive. They understand ideas. They, they take your feedback and they, I I've felt very well taken care of at arrow hunter. So I'm very happy with them. I know some other saddle companies, like you can message them on Instagram and they'll never respond to you. Like Arrow Hunter will. Um, and that's that's pretty cool. Like they're not too big yet where they don't care. Um, so I've been running that saddle. I have the Merlin right now, which is their newest one. But even the, the Flex that I used before that was super comfortable. Um, and for a lot of my mobile sets are... You know, I'm going up in a tree for four or five hours at a time. And then if I'm not getting into any action, I'm moving. Um, so I just wanted something that was super, super mobile friendly. And for the sticks for those, I have the Muddy Pro sticks. Those are those are pretty nice. I like them because they're double-sided and they're short. So they're easier to pack. Um, there are a few other double-sided ones that are short now. At the time that I bought those, like three years ago, they weren't. There weren't many others. I think Haw, nah, Hawk wasn't even didn't even have them, but those hawks seem to break. Um, you see more Facebook posts about those hawks breaking than anything else. Um, the Lone Wolf sticks are good, but again, they're single-sided. The Lone Wolf custom gears, those double-sided ones, are really nice, but I haven't looked into those. Those are expensive. The Shikars are really nice. Those would be the next ones that I'd get. Um, but they are, Shikars are made by Out on a Limb, and those are double steps, double, double stick steps that are two feet long um and those two feet like I, I don't really care that much that they're that they're that short i still get you know maybe i'm missing one or two feet but that's it and then for anybody wondering i do not run a platform with my saddle so i just stand on the top stick which is why i really want those double steps because then i just stand on the top one and i'm good to go makes my setup lighter makes it cheaper um and i can I've been able to stand there for, I think the longest sit I've ever sat there is seven hours just standing on the top step and it hasn't been bad. So I'm fine with it. I, I know there's more comfortable ways to go, but I'm just not, 
I don't want to spend the $200 on a platform is really what it comes down to. And then it takes away from, it adds to the bulk of the pack and kind of takes away from the whole purpose of the saddle hunting is saddle hunting as well. So, um, which that's totally my opinion. The whole purpose of, you know, being able to be super mobile, super light and have no bulk, like, okay, so now you're bringing the base of a platform of a tree stand into the woods with you is essentially what you're doing. It's just smaller. Um, but the whole setup's more expensive. Anyway, that's that's my personal thought on that. Um, other gear, um, you could talk. We could talk about bows, um, binos, optics are important. A rangefinder, obviously, having a rangefinder is going to be extremely helpful um, when you're out there, especially if you're. A lot of people are shooting like you know heavier arrows nowadays, and they'll have more drop. So having a rangefinder and having those key distances pre-measured so that you know where you're shooting and when you're shooting and how far to shoot when these deer come through, um, that's helpful. I'm trying to run through all the gear in my pack. Um, yeah, a release, a sight, a rest, bow. Those are all personal preference in my opinion, like none of them. One of the things I, I will say about gear is be aware of the people that say this gear, this piece of gear is the best out there, hands down. Like this is the best bow. This is the best broadhead. This is the best release. This is the best sight, whatever the hell it is. There's so much in this industry that is preference. You cannot claim that something is the best because what's the best for you might be the worst for me. And it might be as stupid as, Man, I put this, like Aaron Snyder was talking about the other day, he put a quiver on his bow and he missed a couple deer. So then he switched back to his other quiver. There is like, and he could, like Aaron doesn't say that that's the best quiver in the world, but he could, I mean, he. there are people, I've seen people say the dumbest things. Like I, a kid that I know said, dude, you have to use Ramcat broadheads. They're the best out there. I said, how many, really, how many deer have you shot with them? He's like, well, none yet. And I'm like, well, then what the hell are you saying, dude? You know, like you, you have to always look behind the word, like the people that are telling you that something's the best. And even then it's still like my personal opinion is it still always comes down to preference. What's the best for me not, might not be the best for you. Um, other than that, trail cameras, Man, trail cameras have been probably the most influential piece of gear um, that I use just because it adds to that knowledge base. Um, and I've run Exodus trail cameras for like the last three or four years. Um, I shouldn't say I run them exclusively. I just, when I buy a new one, I buy an Exodus. And that's because they've been really reliable for me um, when I set them. I know when I come back, they're actually going to have pictures on them. They're not going to have a million misfires. They're not going to just not work. Like they've always worked for me. They've always taken good pictures. I get very few just ass shots. Um, so the trigger speed's pretty good. And just the fact that I can leave them sit for three months, two months, whatever, and come back and have, you know, very high confidence that they're going to be working and functioning when I get there and they're going to do well. Like that's, that's why I run them because I've never had a failure with them. So, um, and I've had failures with plenty of others. I've run Muddies, Brownings, um, Bushnells, Moultries. Uh, I spent a couple more in there. I had a Stealth Cam. 
Like, I've had failures of those. Um, so I just, I haven't had a failure with Exodus, so that's why I've, I've stuck there. Um, what else? Yeah, I don't use binos a lot, so I can't really talk to them a lot. I mean, I have Vortex binos and I run them um, here and there. It's just, for me, a lot of the areas that I hunt, they're so tight quartered that by the time I see the deer, I can tell you if it's a shooter or not. I don't need to use binos to try to see them at long distance. Um, cause I just like the, the areas are so tight quartered. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, that's kind of it gear. That's, that's it for gear. I'm sorry. I don't have a, a whole lot there, but I mean, you can go out there tomorrow in jeans and a t-shirt and your dad's, you know, bow from 20 years ago and, and kill good deer if you have good knowledge. So, um, I, I, I think, I think the knowledge base is so much more important than the gear. Um, and the hard part about that, like I said, is that knowledge base is time. And, and a lot of us have actually less time than we do money. We, we want to spend our money on something that will essentially improve our odds in the hopes that it'll improve our odds when really like we should probably, and this is me too. Like I spend money on gear, like crap. I mean, I have a full first light system, um, you know, and I have a VXR, like I spend money on hunting equipment, um, in hopes that it's going to make me better. And every year I realize that it may improve my odds a little bit, but what makes me better in the end is my knowledge and my strategy and understanding a property. That's what gives me opportunity. Not that I shoot uh, black gold sight or, you know, black Eagle arrows with an iron wheel broadhead like that, that helps me be successful. Or I, I hope that gives me confidence, I should say. And confidence is, is very important to have. But every year I realize that just like I, I have all this gear and it doesn't matter if you can't draw the bow back and have an opportunity, like opportunity, you have to have the opportunities first before the gear even matters. All right. So I'll end it on that. Um, and it's been an hour. I thought I'd knock this thing out in like 20 minutes. So um, sorry for the rambling. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I hope it brought some insight. And um, if you do have questions, please hit me up on Instagram or, or Facebook. Um, I do have a TikTok now, which is sad to say, but I will. I'm actually doing pretty well on there. People are, people are finding my videos pretty good on there. Um, and there, some of them, I, I find a lot more hate on TikTok than I do on Instagram, but that, that, that's fine. It is what it is. I, I like to talk shit too. So, <laughs> um, all right. Well, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed that and, and please hit me up. And if you like the podcast, um, please subscribe to it. Um, give me a review if you would, I've got, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 reviews. If you would go into iTunes and just, you know, I don't care what you say. Just give me five stars and I'd really appreciate it. All right. Um, I hope you guys, all of you guys have a great Christmas. I hope you have a lot of fun. You give a lot of awesome gifts. You put some smiles on people's faces and, and I hope other people put smiles on your face too. And um, if I don't hear from you, if I don't get one done next week, have a great new year as well. All right. See you guys later.